I'm E.J. Ionelli, and this is From the Studio. This morning, we have Spokane Symphony Music Director James Lowe and violinist Jack Liebeck in the studio to discuss this weekend's Masterwork 6 concert, A Message to the Stars. So welcome, James. Morning, E.J. <laughs> welcome, Jack. Hi. This concert um, is following uh, Holly Cho as a guest conductor and Charlie Albright as our guest soloist. And now we are coming and we are looking into outer space. We are looking at the stars above and the music associated with that. James, how did this concert come about? Well, it started, you know, we canvassed the orchestra every year for a list of pieces that they want to play. And one of the works was Nakuthula Nguniyama's Primal Message. And this is all about the Arecibo message, which was the first radio transmission that was intentionally broadcast to whoever is out there in space, uh, from Puerto Rico to a star cluster 25,000 light years away. So it's still going. And it's a very lovely piece. Uh, and I thought, well, that's a really interesting piece. I have to program that. And then I was trying to think what to put around it. And then I realized that uh, I came across this wonderful Voyager concerto. There's a recording online with Jack playing. And I just thought this was the perfect piece. And then, of course, Beethoven V is one of the pieces on the golden disc. So that kind of made it up. And then I discovered the first piece of music ever performed in space was a Ukrainian song. So that's how we're starting the concert. So you assembled this around the piece Primal Message. Um, I wasn't familiar with this piece. It, it only came out in about 2020, so it's a relatively new piece, no? Very new, yeah. Um, so Thula is a, is a phenomenal violist, and I think that's probably where, as a fellow sufferer of being a viola player, I think that's where it came from. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very new piece. It, it was originally a chamber work, which he then kind of orchestrated for chamber orchestra, and the Northwest Symphonia performed it during lockdown. And there's actually a very good performance on YouTube with them playing it. And so, but as, as I say, I was tipped off by somebody in the orchestra about this piece, so... Uh, I'm very glad they did. Yeah, I was reading, doing some uh, background research on it, and I had realized that it was constructed around uh, prime numbers, you know, hence primal message, but also a reference to us as a species. And she was influenced by some of the primal concepts that were in Carl Sagan's novel Contact. And Carl Sagan is a figure that kind of reemerges in, I think, a lot of these pieces. He certainly, he is, he is the kind of the, the figure lurking behind this entire program, because not only did he... So Frank Drake figured out how to send this message. It's sent in binary pulses. He figured out how to make this so that it kind of bitmaps out into a, a square, this Arecibo message. But the Voyager disc was actually put together by Carl Sagan as well. And he was the guy that decided what was going to go in this binary message. Yeah, and I, I was fascinated to find that in this binary message, it contained a map of Earth. It contained the DNA helix, as it was then understood. Yeah, and it was also just some basic anthropomorphic information about us as a species that was all contained in this radio message that we're just beaming out into the heavens and hoping, in some respects, hoping that it's received. Yeah, well, there's a very famous New York Times article saying, greetings, E.T., please don't murder us, yeah. was the headline. So I think there is also this, there was a bit of a controversy because some other scientists at the time said, well, look, this is really irresponsible. But the truth <laughs> is, you know, since the first radio waves were sent on Earth, they've been drifting out in space anyway. So if there is somebody listening, they're going to hear it at some point. But uh, I think 25,000 light years, it's not a problem I'm worried about. And this piece, Primal Message, because it has uh, such strong or distinct mathematical origins, 
I expected it or half expected it to be very cold and analytical, but it is anything but. It is. It really almost showcases the beauty of mathematics and music. Quite the opposite, in, in actual fact. Exactly. So it's it's about relationships between sounds, between tones, and mathematical proportions. But it is beautiful and elegant, and actually, it's extremely heartfelt music. It's a very romantic piece. So it, no, it doesn't have that kind of dry academic mathematically derived formula feeling about it already at all. I think she just, that was her starting point for getting certain sounds and, and rows together, and then the rest of it is, is just pure music. And Jack, I'm very keen to talk about the Voyager Concerto because this has very personal connections with you. But mm-hmm. before we do, I really also want to talk about this Ukrainian folk song. And I think, mm-hmm. um, James, when you came into the studio at the start of the season and we're kind of previewing the season for our listeners this was one of the pieces that we touched on because it seemed like such an odd inclusion into the the symphony's repertoire on the concert program but this is really fascinating in and of itself this is watching the sky and thinking a thought so what is the the historical or cosmic significance of this well so pavel popovich was the first ukrainian in space he was a cosmonaut he was also the sixth human to orbit the earth and I believe the story goes that ground control in, I guess, Kazakhstan uh, or somewhere said he was an amateur singer, very, very good amateur singer. And they said, sing us, sing us something in orbit. And so he chose this piece. And I think it was clearly a little bit like the line, one small step for man. It was a bit premeditated. And it's all about how sad I am. It's very, it's very typically kind of dark and depressing song, I have to say. Uh, how sad I am and I'm looking at the sky and why can I not fly and my home is in the stars. So this is why I think he chose this piece. This, though, is not going to be performed by the orchestra. I don't want to give really much more away than that. But we are having one solo singer just singing that song. So this this is how we open. I thought it's kind of a nice idea to open the concert with the very first notes of music that were ever heard in space. And we are, are we allowed to talk about who that singer is, or should Absolutely. we keep it no, as a secret? Absolutely, Michael Sinister, um, who's a local a local singer. Um, if you're a follower of Music Fest Northwest, he's an alumnus of of that festival. So yeah, he's he's great. He's also of Ukrainian heritage, which I think is also a nice kind of pulling together. Yeah, this um, this piece it's. Uh, based on a romantic poem by Mikhail Petrenko, and it uh, dates from 1841, and then it was later set to music by uh, Ludmila Alexandrova. So I was interested to see that. But I think, are the lyrics printed in the program notes? Yes. Excellent, because it really highlights, I think, some of the ambivalence around this music that we're sending into space. Uh, And this is a subject that's kind of, um, it, it strikes me on a very personal note because it highlights the duality of man I get uh, a little a little emotional reading these lyrics because the poet is saying, you know, questioning why they're not a falcon, why they're not an eagle. And they say, the distant sky is my home. On earth, it is bitter. And when it becomes worse, I raise my eyes to the sky and I feel more cheerful. Mm-hmm. And so we have, for example, with the Golden Records, we have these crowning achievements of, of artistic genius that are being sent and we're highlighting and showcasing the beauty and, and the genius of humanity and same with this poem. And then we're also acknowledging kind of the duality of man. We're acknowledging uh, the baseness of our species as well in, in all this. Absolutely. And I think also the, the first movement of Beethoven 5, which is also on the Voyager disc, 
is really the perfect encapsulation of the idea of struggle, hum- human struggle. If you look at the original manuscript of Beethoven's, how the copyist figured out what to put in the original <laughs> printing ver- printed version, I have no idea, because it's full of crossed out, bi- angrily crossed out bits. You can see the energy that he's crossed something out, tried something else. And for a piece that feels so totally familiar now, the idea that he actually really struggled and put things in, took things out, crossed it out, started again. For, for me, that's a very beautiful feeling of this idea that of, of mankind, humankind striving for something greater than ourselves. And turning to the Voyager Concerto, now, Jack, this piece was written by Dario Marianelli for you. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? So I was introduced to Dario back in 2010, 2011, when I was a soloist on his soundtrack. for. He's a, primarily a, a film composer. He's won a Golden Globe and an Oscar and uh, all sorts of other awards. And he, he wrote the music for the film Jane Eyre and was looking for a violinist to the violin was basically Jane's spirit through the movie. So, um, and so we were put in touch through record companies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and really hit it off. Um, his his music sort of spoke to me as a as a musician, and I think for him the sound my sound was very much right for that project. And we became great friends. And then I'm always saying to him, Dario, you need another violin in your sound next soundtrack. Come on, <laughs> give me another one. So when we did Anna Karenina, which was an, another great film. So the I, I then have my own festival in Oxford, uh, which is a music and science and arts festival. And where sometimes there are links between sort of, so we have lectures, science lectures and concerts and popular science for, for the public. And sometimes there are links between the music and the lectures. And sometimes it's just incredible high-end lectures about some kind of research or space or whatever it is, vaccines or, you know, and then great concerts. So it's just a celebration of all all things wonderful about, you know, human endeavor. And through that festival, I've managed to become uh, friends with Professor Brian Cox, who's very well known in this country as well now. And we decided to pitch the idea to some orchestras about having a big, grand project celebrating um, space. And for me, Dario, with this sort of filmic composition style, but also his singing, which is my what I think I like to do most of all with my violin is to sing uh, idea. I, we thought Dario would be the perfect person to write this violin concerto. So uh, I found an orchestra that was willing to put their money where their mouth was <laughs> and because it's you know to get Brian Cox and a concerto put together is going to take some funding etc and this was the Queensland Symphony Orchestra and then we co-commissioned it with the Swedish Radio Orchestra as well and you know it's like um, it's like having a child you never really know what's going to come out when you when you when you have the idea something might have something might wonderful might happen and something terrible might happen um, and this violin concerto was just it's beautiful it's it's huge it's a really big piece it's a good 30 minutes long and because the piece that it goes alongside originally was Holst Planets, um, it's a big orchestra as well. So the lovely thing about it is it's based upon the Gavotten Rondo that's on the on the gold disc that went in space. And um, the violin is very much the, the Voyager capsule as it travels in, encountering different worlds and um, 
um, really sort of it's got a soul gives the gives the Voyager capsule a soul. Yeah, that Voyager narrative it inserts almost a programmatic element to this because there are sections to this, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. like um, looking up what shall we send this question of that you know Sagan asked his group, the glittering rings, which are referring to to Saturn, and then uh, looking backwards a pale blue dot, which I think is a, a phrase borrowed from Sagan as yes, well. Yes, yeah, and that's also a phrase that Brian Cox as well often talks about in his in his talks is that that uh, you know that re- looking they 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 decided to turn the capsule the cameras around to take a photograph of the earth from all these thousands of light years away i can't remember how far it was Not uh, light just years, outside just the, just the, a, yeah. outside the galaxy yeah. and um, and you know literally just there's this little blue dot that is the earth and you realize that we are you know in the grand scheme of things absolutely nothing and we need to you know, think about protecting what we are and because actually it's precious um, rather than doing all the stuff that we do. Very thoughtful, but it's, uh, and, and, and it, it looks on the image like there's a sort of light beam. I think it's actually a slightly optical illusion with the lens, but it looks yeah. like the earth is this blue dot within a light beam, but it's just a blue dot in the vast d- darkness. And the picture itself, the, the earth is literally, if you're looking at it on a computer screen, it's the size of a pixel. It's yeah. almost nothing. You have to really strain to see it. And in the music, there is this wonderful moment. For me, it's one of my favourite moments in a piece of, of, of highlight, actually, where the orchestra actually begin to hum the last chord they played. And so you f- sudden, it's almost like the humming of the orchestra is the light beam surrounding the earth. Mm. It's such a magical moment. And, yeah, I think this genius idea of Carl Sagan, that all the scientific work had been done and before it left the solar system, just to turn back and look back at earth. It's a very moving moment. Mm. And in this uh, almost narrative, does your violin function to some degree as the Voyager spacecraft? Because it is a solo violin. And I imagine the the Voyager, well, there are two Voyager spacecraft, but, Mm. you know, very far apart from one another. And one, it's just out there solitary. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the soul of the Voyager. And I think the orchestra seems to be the planets, the whatever it comes into contact with as it's, as it's, be hurtling out into outer space, and um, it, it it very much sort of like gives it a personality, a human personality, and you you know there are moments where it feels very lonely, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's beautiful. It's um, I've I've always had a wonderful time performing this piece, and and I think uh, also Dario as a person is one of the most beautiful souls as a person. He's a very sensitive man. And he has been writing for 20, 30 years, mostly for movies. Um, so it was quite a, an undertaking for him to sort of go and suddenly write concert music. So it was, I think it was a very big soul searching for him to work out how to get this thing to, to work um, as, a, as a concert piece. And I think that it really does manage to have a, it, it's very moving, especially at the end. Mm-hmm. As, uh, do I give away the story at the end? I think you can. But yeah, it just basically, it just sort of, you just hear the Bach disappearing off into the into space, it just gets quieter and quieter, and just little elements of the Bach played on the violin as as you hear, hear it just flying away. Um, it's very moving. And you've talked about your own interest in science and pairing the arts and sciences, but the Voyager mission specifically, did you have a, a particular interest in this prior to uh, your engagement with this piece? Um, no, that exactly how to what to come up with was a sort of collaboration between me, Dario, and Brian. We knew that we were going to do something, you know, uh, 
to go alongside the whole planets, the planets. And then it was just uh, we went out for a nice dinner, as all good things either happen in pubs or over food, right? <laughs> so um, we we had a dinner and um, it just were chatting, and it was decided that that was be the ideal thing that fired off the imagination for Dario and. So um, I'm no, in no way a scientist myself. I, I'm much more interested, in, or not my, interested, I, I wish I were clever enough to be a scientist, but um, my thing is really about coming up with concepts that bring these things together. And I run a couple of festivals where we do that sort of thing. So I'm good at like bringing in other genius people, not myself, I'll just let them do their great <laughs> thing. And, uh, and uh, Dario, I think, is an absolutely incredible composer. And Brian Cox is, ability to talk about science and make it approachable to the general public is also on the genius level. He's unbelievable. I've heard him talk so many times and literally can make the most obtuse, difficult s subjects come to life for, for people. And, you know, if you're selling out football stadiums talking about physics, you must be on a genius level somehow. Yeah, um, he really does uh, continue the legacy that Sagan or of Sagan mm -hmm. in popularizing science and astronomy and just making it more accessible. Yeah, there's a wonderful phenomenon that's happened in the last um, fifteen or so years, I think, where being a geek has become a cool thing, <laughs> um, and it's brilliant for us geeks. Yeah. Um, absolutely, it gives, <laughs> uh, we're no longer shunned. Um, <laughs> And uh, so it's actually, you know, intellect and interest in th in things is now celebrated. And I think it's part. One, it's probably one of the good things that's come out of the internet is that you know, in the in there is awful things that go on in the dark recesses of the internet, but there are also really fascinating things, and people can you can delve into things on a level and discuss with other people and um, on a level that was never possible before and things can get celebrated. I mean, if you've got any any little interest, you know, if you look on it on the internet for it, there's thousands of people who have, oh, funny, I'm not the only person who's interested in this weird thing. So um, it's one of the good things that's come out of the internet, I think. And, you know, I regularly do events with Brian. We do, you know, gigs in the Royal Albert Hall in London with 6,000 people where he doesn't even tell them what the audience what's going to be on it's just going to be science and people just buy tickets and come and and lap it up it's just it's it's what it's a wonderful thing and um, we can in, indulge and revel in our in our geekdom yeah exactly <laughs> and before we get into the beethoven which a lot of people are going to be familiar with i did want to talk about how you two came together and you know <laughs> well, how did this even how did this even ago. happen well literally 10 minutes ago uh before going on air we met so i've known about jack I'd actually have seen you perform, but we've never met. And, you know, I discovered this concerto, and then I discovered that it was Jack who had commissioned it. I just thought, oh, well, this is the opportunity now. This is perfect. But as it turns out, in that way that the music world is so very small, we have a lot of people in common, and we actually have a, a, a very good friend of ours called Simon Crockle, who was really very important in the beginning of both our careers um, in, a, in an industry, I think, that doesn't usually give people much of a chance unless you have a big powerful agent behind you there, there are a few individuals who actually really when they discover someone they like really help and nurture and support them and we have a similar person in in, in common for that so that that was a lovely uh, yeah. coincidence yeah it's a to to be doing this as a profession 
is remarkably difficult to keep sustain it. You know, you can have, you know, good times and to to be doing it after twenty twenty five years. I always think, okay, I'm still playing concerts. I must have I must have made it. So you know, if I'm still doing it in my forties, etc. Um, but those people that give you your first opportunities are pivotal um, because you know uh, sometimes. For instance, you know, those early concerts that this this gentleman gave me um, really were the ones where I worked out how to do my job, mm-hmm. you know. And if, I, if I'd if i have only had one chance at it, you know, that's uh, not so useful. But to be able to do it over and over again, we get our sea legs, so to speak, as sort of playing concertos, for instance, as a violinist. You know, you really got to feel comfortable. And then to develop a relationship with a group of musicians like that, that he gave me the opportunity to do is um, very important. I'm going to send this recording of this interview to him. I think we should. Hello, <laughs> Simon. Thank you very much. And also for me, I think, you know, as a conductor, the horrible thing about being a conductor is that you cannot practice on your own. The first time you really get your instrument is when you're standing in front of 70 hard-bitten, steely-eyed professional musicians. Yeah. <laughs> and that is quite an intimidating thing. And, you know, Simon was was very kind. To, to, he made me associate conductor of the Scottish National Orchestra, which is, I think, where Jack also had this relationship with that with that orchestra too in fact where you were just two days two ago, days ago making yeah. a recording making a recording in glasgow yeah so yeah and i think for for me that ability particularly as a conductor at the beginning of your career you cannot possibly know how to do the job with an orchestra like that every time you go up a level so you with students and then you go to a professional orchestra it's having to learn the job entirely again from scratch so having somebody that believes in you and will keep bringing you back and giving you the opportunity to grow and also being with a group of musicians generous enough to allow you to do that and to support you in that. And I was actually very lucky with the Scottish, sorry, Royal Scottish National Orchestra, I should say. They were, as individual musicians as well, extremely kind to me and really supportive uh, at a really pivotal moment in my career. That is unusual because that orchestra was very well known for chewing up conductors. I mean, (laughs) really brutally. Um, Yes, they did. They did have that reputation. I think not an unfounded reputation, but I think they there was something about our relationship, something about the way I first met that orchestra. And I think the fact I was living in Scotland, I happened to be living in Scotland at the time. And I think they felt a bit of ownership. And so, yeah, I was I was extremely lucky that they allowed me to actually conduct them and work with them. And yeah, we had a few moments here and there, but no, it's really lovely. And in fact, I was back with them again, I think in the middle of the pandemic, we did a, a recording. Uh, it was really fun. It's very changed. It's a lot of lot of different people in the I, orchestra I now just, from when I started there. I was just thinking that two days ago, because um, there were a lot of people I now, you know, I, I, going back to being in my mid-40s now, there are a lot of people in the orchestra now who I studied with at the same time. So, because those people 25 years ago who were in their... 50s they've now retired yes well, so the most depressing thing of all though is when i went in i looked at the trumpet section and i thought there's a big guy principal trumpet there and i thought i know him and i went up to him and said and he said yes you conducted me when i was in notting youth orchestra <laughs> i thought oh lord so it's got to that stage now and not only have the people that i knew mostly retired the people coming in were not only contemporaries of mine but now they're also kids who played in my youth orchestra so that's slightly depressing but there we go and of course as a conductor you not only have that relationship with the orchestra but the audience and with a piece like the beethoven five you've got an audience that is coming even an audience that is unfamiliar with classical music as a whole they know the opening bars of this piece absolutely and so is this piece a little more weighted than usual because it comes saddled with those expectations 
it, it depends if you believe in the word interpretation or not. And I say the word interpretation in heavy quotation marks. I think there's a lot of nonsense spoken about making music, unfortunately. I think that this word interpretation presupposes that the conductor, the great maestro, is controlling like puppets the 70, 80 members of a pro professional orchestra. I hate to burst your bubble, Jack, but no. Oh. Um, and it also, it's also, it's quite insulting to orchestral players because it also presumes that they have no part in playing their parts. And of course, that's absolute rot. And it's actually something that Bernard Heitink said in an interview once. Somebody said about his interpretation. He got irritated and said, why can't we just play the darn music? And I agree with that. And I think you study the score, you look at the score. Of course, you don't go in with no ideas and you don't go in without anything. But the whole point is you're making music with an orchestra, not mm -hmm. on an orchestra. And once you've come at it with that approach, I think this whole idea of the weight of interpretation of, oh, my God, Carlos Kleiber recorded this. Of course, it's magnificent. But then I think it's a different thing. What we're doing actually is, you know, if, if I were recording this on Deutsche Grammophon, this might be a different conversation. But what we're doing is we're performing it live for these people in, in, in our town this weekend. And as that, it's going to be a spontaneous piece of music making that we've worked very hard on. But I like this idea that, that music is a living, breathing thing and it's never the same twice. That, that's what I particularly love about our art form in that, you know, it's not like a you can compare Beethoven 5 to a Picasso or a Da Vinci painting or something, but our music comes to life through through the vehicle of the musicians um, playing. And whereas a, a painting sits on a gallery wall and people passively, you know, view it and then go and, and look at it and then walk on to the next one. Um, you can enjoy looking at the score, but that is kind of like only for people who really understand score reading, which is going to be the small, nerds. The nerds, yeah. <laughs> but these are living, breathing, master, like one of the some of the great uh, creations of humanity. So we don't just play it; we experience the piece from the inside out, which is something that I, I, I particularly love um, about. We're very lucky, and I always think as a performer that if the audience can get 50% of what we feel when we're playing it. We've done a good job. Mm -hmm. Because this, the, the, I mean, I, uh, the other thing is like, can you imagine a day where Beethoven 5 didn't exist? No. It's a bit like Everest not existing. You know, it's, it's a work of nature. This comes with the planet, right? And it, we were just waiting for someone to put it down on paper. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that's how, you know, with these incredible works of art, it, it's as if, they come with the planet. They they are part of uh, the human story and and just like like nature, the Everest or you know the Niagara Falls, Beethoven Five, yeah. Beethoven Violin Concerto, all the great yeah. works that that we all have. Um, so they are almost not man-made. Absolutely, and I think for me, what is therefore, as I said before, incredible is to think not only did an actual human being write this music. But it wasn't like Everest. He actually made it up. And you see that in the score. And it's astonishing to me. I can't. I, I, and I said this, I gave a little talk about the piece, about the whole concert yesterday. And I said to the people, I said, you know, I cannot imagine a time without this piece. Mm. That it, like before Beethoven 5, it, but it's always existed. You know, it's, it's in our consciousness so deeply. But same with, same with Elton John songs. Sorry. You listen to, to Elton <laughs> totally John, this, the playlist of every song. It's like... How did this guy make so many hits? Every single one of these songs is the 20th century, encapsulated in movies, yeah. in song and everything. It's like, it, again, it feels like he didn't write it. It just, it just 
came out of him. You know, if it wasn't him, it would be another person yeah. in a hundred yeah. years or something. But yeah, th- there are certain things that, that seem to be greater than man-made. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, music that is uh, integral to and almost an expression of our entire species, and hence its inclusion yeah. on the golden record. You put it better than us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. perfectly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think that was Carl Sagan's genius, actually. Um, and I highly recommend anybody to to go online and, and, and listen to all of the music on the golden record, because it's not just Beethoven and Bach. Mm. It's the um, uh, Chuck Berry. Berry's on there. Yeah. There's an awful lot of world music as well. It's a really moving thing to listen to as well. And I highly recommend also listening to the, there's some, some speech on there. There's a message from the head of the UN at the time and people saying 55 different languages saying messages of greetings. And it, it, it really is, I don't know, for me, another this this idea of the best of who we can be. Mm. And I do feel, you know, there's a lot of time, you know, if you spend a lot of time reading the news or watching the news, you can very easily be tricked into thinking that, that the worst side of humanity is its dominant edge and I don't think that's true at all I think we have unbelievable ability to inspire and struggle and strive and and create this unique beauty and that really is what we're celebrating in this concert and an exquisite note on which to end Uh, James and Jack I want to thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this program and these pieces and the whole concept behind them Thank you, Thank you. I've been speaking this morning with James Lowe and Jack Liebeck ahead of this weekend's Spokane Symphony Masterworks 6 concert titled A Message to the Stars. There are two performances of Masterworks 6, one on Saturday, February 3rd, and the other on Sunday, February 4th. And both are at the Martin Woldson Theater at the Fox in downtown Spokane. And you can get tickets at foxtheaterspokane.org, or you can call the Fox box office on 509-624-1200.